Temporary was produced on the lands of the Bijigal, Gadigal, Nungar, Warujuri, and Karuna peoples whose sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and those who are yet to emerge. When people seek asylum, they're doing it because they're afraid. They can't stay where they are because of who they are. They arrive in Australia looking for safety. But when they get here, they get caught up in this maze of bureaucracy, trapped in a system that doesn't make them feel safe, and that importantly, prevents them from starting a new and permanent life. My name is Sisonkem Simang, and this is Temporary. Every day it just shocks me, like, how many things went wrong, how many places were neglected towards me and my rights as a young person. We met Zaki in episode one. My name is Zaki Haidari. I am a refugee from Afghanistan. When Zaki left Afghanistan, he was just a kid. He left behind his mother and his loved ones, and he got on a boat in search of safety. But before Zaki arrived in Sydney, his boat was intercepted at sea by the Australian Navy. They took us to the Christmas Island. They divide people into different groups. So the male who were by himself were in a different compound. Family were in a different compound. I was 17 back then, and they put me with the family. He left home a 17-year-old boy. But when he got to Christmas Island, he became something else. Um, so in that day, in the evening, I had another three immigration officers that they came and took me to a room. It was three in the afternoon. There was an interpreter as well. Um, they integrated me from three to seven at night. And by then I was very scared. In the eyes of the Australian immigration officials, he became an illegal maritime arrival. And then at the end of the question, they were saying, we don't accept your ID card. We don't accept what you said, your date of birth is or on the document. Your date of birth is what we are saying. This they have written by then on a paper and they made me to sign saying, from today, this is your date of birth. And for me, I was like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, a few months. If I'm safe, I will do it. So I just sign it. When he's given this piece of paper, it feels like one of the easiest things he's been asked to do. Sign it and everything will be okay. He has no idea what the implications are that this piece of paper means he's an adult, not a kid. The next thing I noticed that they came and picked me up and transferred me to the male compound, where my date of birth was different and I was 18. We saw this happen a lot around this time and around the time Zaki arrived, children being treated as, as adults. This is Ben Doherty, a journalist with The Guardian Australia who covers immigration issues. Children were sent to a men's-only facility on Manus Island when they were 15, 16 years old. Ben's going to help us as we try to make sense out of this incredibly complicated system. You can imagine how this happens. You've come halfway across the world to a place where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the process of, of what's going on, and you're told you need to sign this paper in order to get protection. You need to tell us you're an adult. You'll sign what you're, you're told to sign. So if Zaki says he's 17, what's the process for proving what age he actually would be? Well, even if you do have documents, sometimes that's not enough. Zaki would have turned up possibly carrying a Tazkira, which is an, an Afghan identity document. The Australian government doesn't accept those as legitimate. So even if you had papers that showed that you were 17, that wouldn't be accepted. You don't ask a question. 
you just you had to follow whatever was asked you to do. Like you never could ask any question. But Zaki, now an adult in the eyes of the Australian immigration authorities, did not spend much time on Christmas Island. Within just a few months, he was moved to a detention centre in Tasmania. So we didn't know anything about Tasmania. And then, yeah, I was kind of worried as well. Like, what is this island? Is it an Australian island or is it like another country, like Narromanus Island? Because I had no idea about Australia. I knew nothing. But this time, Zaki gets some good news. He's moved not to another detention centre, but into the community, where he will wait for his asylum claim to be processed. They asked me if I know anyone in Australia. I said, no, I don't know anyone. They said, do you have any friend? I said, no. And I was like, okay, all right. And I got a bridging visa, which allowed me to live in the community. And the next day I was transferred to Sydney. While the government decides whether someone can make an asylum application or while the government is deciding the merits of somebody's claim, they can put people on bridging visas. This is Jane McAdam, director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Essentially, this is a way of people living in the community, but they're basically kept in, in limbo while their claim is decided. Today, a federal parliamentary committee has recommended asylum seekers be detained for no longer than 90 days. More people who arrive by boat will be placed on bridging visas, allowing them to live in the community while their claims are processed. The bridging visas back then was mean that you can live in the community temporarily before your claim will be processed or before you will be transferred to Naroman Asylum. Now, just because he's in the community, just because he's landed in Sydney and is finally in Australia, it doesn't mean that he can just get on with a normal life. Everyone who comes to Australia by boat is still technically subject to the policies of offshore detention. So in other words, they don't have the same freedoms that we all have. So our visa, our bridging visa was expiring every six months and we didn't know if we were getting another visa or not. In late 2013, the Department of Immigration stopped renewing ex- expired bridging visas, so people fell into this sort of limbo of not having a visa to live in the country. Uh, every six months when the visa was expired, there was a gap between visas. Like Sometimes it could be days, sometimes it could be weeks. And then when they started up again, people started to get very, very short bridging visas. Previously, there had been two years, three years. Now people were getting bridging visas for 28 days. So every month they're having to go back and, and wonder where they're going to get another visa to stay in the country. And at this time, the government was doing everything that it could to move people offshore. So during this time, we were panicking because it happened when people's visa were expiring. They were coming and getting them away at midnight. People are getting woken up in the middle of the night and taken. Putting them back to detention centers. And this just causes another layer of anxiety. So there was days and nights that we couldn't sleep at night. Even a car was crossing the road, we were like, oh, this could be the police and the immigration officer, they would take us away. Zaki's safe, but there's this sense of being illegal that hangs over him. He's legal, he's got a visa, but at any moment that could be snatched from him, and it makes him feel like he's not free. I couldn't sleep. I was scared of going to bed. I was trying to stay awake all night. My maximum hour of sleep was like two hours and I was getting nightmares that people were trying to shoot me and I was running from them. And I feel like I, I was shot many times in my legs. I couldn't run and was screaming. So it's hard for Zaki to sleep. The fear of getting put back in detention haunts him. But during the day, he's stressed as well. 
he has a whole new set of problems to deal with. I think we were given $100 cash to survive for two weeks. He's still wearing the same clothes he wore in the detention center because that $100, it needs to go a long way. We had nothing. It was just like we had our clothing that was given in detention center. It was like we were wearing the same clothes and like a prisoner, white shirt and like a, <laughs> not the proper pants and thing, a white shoes. So he doesn't eat. So we were in a motel room. I was super hungry. And then we went to the shopping mall. It was just next to the motel, we found out. And then we went to the burger shop, and I was looking at the menu, and the burger was costing $10. So I'm like, I have $100 to survive for 15 days. And if a meal costs me $10, how am I going to survive for another, like, 14 days? He doesn't speak very good English. He still misses his mom terribly and wishes she was there to tell him what to do. And I was talking to a friend. I'm like, what should we do? He goes like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm not going to eat today. He's like, it's a wise decision to make because we don't have enough money. So we didn't eat that day. And the next day, I was so hungry. And on top of all of this, Zaki still has to find a place to live. I had six weeks to find a place to live. Otherwise, all the money that I was getting from Centrelink would be given to the rent that I was staying in a motel. But yeah, we were like, in, we were rushing to find a place to live because we were running out of time every day, like where to live. And renting, we found out the renting is like super intense in Australia. You had to have banks dead in, like whatever, like a lot of bunch of documents. And we didn't have work right to work. So it was hard for people to trust to rent a place for us. So Zaki figures out a way to get a house. He bands together with a few other young people. Anyways, we found a place with the help of the social worker before the sixth week was expired, and we moved into this house with another uh, three Hazara men. In Sydney, which is super expensive and super hard, but he figures out a way to do that. We rented a place. We managed to secure a place to rent. But then they just have to wait. The weird thing about our visa was, like, we didn't have work right, which meant that we were forced to get Centrelink. They're not allowed to work. Even though we really wanted to get a job, we weren't allowed to work. He can't go to school. Which I was dreaming for. To go to TAFE or college or university to learn English or even to go to school. This is the first time in Zaki's life when he's had nothing to do. And I was really bored. Everyone was bored. He's grown up in a community, surrounded by people, always having something to do, always being told what to do by his mom, aunties and uncles. And for the first time, he has no support network. He's got nothing to do, and it starts to take its toll. Yeah, I don't expect people to guess what I was thinking or why I'm saying this, but for me it was very painful because for, for for my family education was the main thing and it's an important thing for our family to do and I was getting up early morning and I was sitting in front of the house and I was seeing people in my age and they were going to school with uniforms and stuff and I was like God, look at my life I have nothing to do and sit and watch them I really wanted to go to school uh, it was the painful thing ever to witness every morning you get up and you have nothing in your life to do and these people could go to school you know it's like I know it sounds crazy, but for me, it was like a big deal. Like I was hating myself every day. I'm like, why can't I go to school? You know, it was, was crazy. Getting a good education was always a big deal, not just for Zaki and his family, but for all Hazaras. 
my grandfather wasn't allowed to go to school because of his ethnicity and because of his religion. For Hazara men and women, getting a good education is about taking back their rights. It's about liberating their community from the persecution they face under the Taliban. My dad was the first person in our entire family who went to school. Um, it was a big deal for for the whole family and how much everyone was proud of him. And then he managed to get into university, did a medical science, and he became the doctor that people needed. And he opened his medical center in the town that we were from. He was a very well-respected man. People respected him because he saved hundreds of lives. Zaki's older brother Ali was too. And he followed in his dad's footsteps. My older brother was, his name was Ali, and he was... He meant a lot to our family, especially to my dad. So my brother finished high school, and I never saw that super happy like that in, in his life, where he was very proud dad, and you could see that in him. He was like, yes, you made it, and you're going to university. You know, it was a huge deal for him. It's a shame to say, but Afghanistan is a country where um, being a university student or even a school student, um, you're you're a criminal again for the Taliban. And if they find out that you're going to school, or especially university, they could behead you. When Zaki was 15, his brother was on a bus, coming back from uni. He forgot to leave his student ID card in Kabul. So this time when he was traveling, his bus was stopped by Taliban. At the time, things weren't safe. There were roadblocks all the time, and people were often kidnapped if they didn't have their proper identification. And they often didn't have their proper identification because they were trying to hide the fact that they were Hazaras. They searched him, and they, they found his student ID card in his pocket, and they just beheaded him on the spot of being a university student to teach other young people in the bus a lesson. It was a huge loss for our family and was a big shock. Um, normally when they take people away, they brutally kill them overnight. Or sometimes they just behead them on the spot in front of people to teach them a lesson. Other times they took him away and brutally kill them overnight and throw their body on the road. So the next day people could take their bodies to the town where they belong to. After losing one family member to the Taliban, they were forced to mourn another. My dad's case, we couldn't find anything from him. His van was stopped on the road, and mom, mom knew what happened. Mm. Zaki and his mom spent a long time looking for his dad. There's no trace of him, if he's alive or dead. They would go up and down the roads, and they were often, because there were so many kidnappings, there were often bodies on the side of the road. And so they would wake up in the morning, and they would go and check the bodies to make sure that his wasn't one of them. We just hope that he's alive because we haven't found anything yet. So going to school, getting a good education, it's not just about him. It's about making his father proud and doing what his brother never got the chance to do. And as he sat in Sydney, Zaki realized that that document that they made him sign on Christmas Island, the one that said he was 18, that document had implications. Yeah, so when I was forced to be 18, then I was realizing that I'm in the community. If I was 17, I had the right to go to school. I had the right for someone to protect me. Um, but then if I'm 18, I'm just an adult. No one could, could like, I don't ask for anything, you know, 
I don't have any rights, really. Like, I'm not a child anymore. So and then I was realizing that if I was 17, I could have gone to school, I could have had family to live with and all, I could have had the support. The one thing that comes through with Zaki is he wants to go to school. He's desperate to go to school. Um, he comes from a family that values education and as a persecuted minority in Afghanistan, he barely got that chance. But he stopped from doing that. I don't, I don't understand even today why we weren't allowed to work. And that was government policy for a long time, was to keep asylum seekers out of school out of employment. If I was allowed to work, I could have paid tax. I could have paid my tuition fees with my own money. And it really played into that political narrative about asylum seekers not becoming part of Australia and, and, and being deliberately excluded. Now, that policy's been changed, but for months, for years, people languished in this sort of enforced penury or forced into sort of black market labour where they were vulnerable to being exploited. It created a whole host of new problems, not allowing people to restart their lives. I don't know why we weren't allowed to work. We weren't allowed to learn English. That's the basic thing you need in a country to speak and communicate with people and you're not given that right. So I don't know what was the knowledge behind it. So what's the reason why a government wouldn't want people who are here to go to school or be able to work? The rationale's never made explicit, but I think... If you imagine it from the government side of view, they're sort of treating people as asylum seekers as waiting for a decision on whether they can stay or not. Prime Minister Scott Morrison's quite fond of saying that if you have a go, you get a go. And yet when it comes to refugees and people seeking asylum, they're not given the opportunity to have a go. I think this is another indication of the cruelty that underpins so many of Australia's asylum policies. It's a way of keeping people separated from the Australian community, isolated and in limbo. The idea is not to allow people to embed themselves in the community to make those friendships and, and connections and all those sorts of things. So it's really about exclusion. It's about keeping people out saying you're not Australian. Well, you're at least not Australian yet. It's basically about keeping people temporary. The stress of being temporary is really starting to weigh on Zaki. The distance between his old life and his inability to make a new home in Australia is really getting him down. And the only way that he can get any rest, the only way he can sleep at night, is if he talks to his mom. Every night before I go to bed, I can't sleep if I don't talk to mom. After years of living in the community under the shadow of uncertainty, Zaki got some really good news. A private college in Sydney was offering him a scholarship. All he had to do was pass an entry-level English test. I was studying like crazy, nuts. I'm like, I have to pass this to go to college. And three months I passed the English test and I managed to get into college. And I had choice to choose IT, graphic design or business. And I went with IT because my older brother was doing computer science and he couldn't finish it, so... It wasn't just for me, it was for family and for my brother as well. And I finished my diploma. College called me one day and said, you're nominated for an award as well. 
and said, your graduation is next Friday. I was so happy, like I called mom and I'm like, mom, I'm going to my graduation ceremony. But I'm alone, like, <laughs> I don't have you or my dad. Um, you guys were dreaming this day in your life and I'm going and wearing the clothes that you were dreaming, but I don't have you guys here. So they came and I was very emotional. Went to college to get my clothes and I wore them. And I called mom again. I'm like, I'm wearing the clothes. I was so emotional. And yeah, mom was emotional. She was crying and she was like, I wish I was there or your dad. I had no one. <laughs> yeah, it was a big day for me. I went to the stage with my clothes and I got my diploma certificate and I got a trophy for, for highest academic achiever. <laughs> it was the biggest moment for my life. And I could feel like my dad was in the room uh, and my mom, but not physically, like I couldn't have them to give me a hug. Yeah, but it was a huge achievement for me and for my family. I think that was the best day of my life ever, that I did something not just for myself, but for my family and especially my dad. During this time, Zaki was formally recognized as a refugee, which meant he moved from living on a bridging visa, which expires every couple of months, to something a little more stable, a five-year temporary protection visa. But it came with conditions. Yeah, it was a crazy moment, a very emotional, and I saw them after five years. Six weeks I was overseas, right? And I had amazing sleep every night. I was in bed by 10 till 7 in the morning, no nightmares. And then when I came back since then, I have, yeah, I've been good. If Zaki had come a few decades earlier, or if he had arrived by plane, or even if he had come by boat just a few months earlier than he did, it would have meant he had permanent protection. Instead, under Australia's new laws, he got a five-year temporary protection visa. And although this new visa gave him some peace, he still can't plan for the future. Zaki is still temporary. Yeah, people in my age, I think they have goals and dreams that they, what they wanted in five years or in ten years. Every human being on the earth deserves to have a proper life or a permanent life. For me, it's like, if I have tomorrow, I'll be happy. Temporary is hosted by me, Sasan Kim Simang, and produced by Kara Jensen McKinnon and Miles Herbert, with editorial support from Lauren Martin and Miles Martignoni. Original music composed by Lama Zaharia, mixed and mastered by Ryan Pemberton, with series artwork by Matt Wynn. Temporary is a project from the UNSW Center for Ideas and Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, co-produced with Guardian Australia and inspired by the book Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs by Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong. The podcast is accompanied by a digital storytelling project which further explores the lives of the people interviewed in this series and is linked in the show notes.
If this story has raised any issues for you, please know that help is available. Contact Lifeline on 131114.